When he heard this sound on this record, it changed his life. Even though he'd already been entranced by the sound of the organ in church, it wasn't Jimmy Smith's Hammond B that grabbed him here, but the tenor saxophone of Stanley Turrentine. Ironically, it was a veteran player and committed teacher far from home who changed his life even more fundamentally, even though this player and his sax sounded like this. This is Ed Kitt Jordan, known as a free jazz player. And Louis Fouché, from Mountaintop, PA, fell into his orbit almost as if destiny had some hand in it. Director of the Louis Armstrong summer jazz camp, Jackie Harris, praised Ed Kitt Jordan before his passing on April 7th of this year at the age of 87 in this way, Kid Jordan is the epitome of a true teacher. I often say that as Kid and his friends Bat, Alvin Batiste, and Clyde, Clyde Kerr Jr., woke up every morning with the express purpose of teaching somebody's child how to be a good citizen and an honorable person who cares for others, Kid is still teaching critical thinking, teamwork, and discipline, everything needed to be successful in life and in music. Kid's own life is like an oxymoron, a glowing example of liberal conservatism, combining conservative methods of teaching to create liberal ways of thought and expression in music. His mission has always been to provide the fundamentals that produce the skills needed to play any type of music. Words of Jackie Harris in Sticking Up for Children. And that's just it. Kid gave Fouché the fundamentals so he could use the basic tools to find his own voice and to grow to sound like this. An understanding of the fundamentals, yes, but also Kid modeled dedication and a consistent work ethic. Kid has said, music is from cradle to grave. I practice every day. And Jackie Harris observed that Kid expected and demanded the very same discipline from his students. Louis Fouché grew up in Mountaintop, Pennsylvania and attended Crestwood High School and Wyoming Seminary. He spent summers with family in New Orleans, where he began studying music at the Louis Sachmo Armstrong Summer Jazz Camp. Fouché has toured with 10-time Grammy-winning Latin music legend Eddie Palmieri since 2010, and he has appeared nightly on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert since 2017, first as a member of John Baptiste and Stay Human, and now with Louis Cato and The Late Show Band. Fouché has performed with a host of renowned artists, including Dave Matthews, Billy Joel, Carole King, James Taylor, Paul Simon, Joe Walsh, 
Michael Bublé, the list goes on. Fouché is a recipient of the prestigious Peabody Award and the first ever Distinguished Alumni Award from Crestwood High School. In addition to performing, Fouché is an accomplished producer, composer, and arranger. His self-produced debut EP, Subjective Mind, was a number one new release on Amazon. As a co-leader, he has a recent album titled Eddie Palmieri Presents Sonido Solar, and it's receiving critical acclaim. Before pursuing music full-time, though, Fouché earned degrees in physics and chemical engineering from MIT. In 2011, he co-founded the MIT Online Science, Technology, and Engineering Community. Fouché's performance at the FM Kirby Center tomorrow night marks the first time he will return to perform professionally in Wilkes-Barre since he was in high school. We had a chance to speak by phone with Louis Fouché about his ties to northeastern Pennsylvania, his music, and his return home. I was born in New Jersey, right near Newark, in a town called Orange. And we moved to Pennsylvania when I was four. And we moved to, to Mountaintop. And my family is certainly a family of uh, music lovers. I, I didn't grow up in a family of musicians, but certainly music lovers. And I always had a love for music, too. I, I grew up listening to a lot of great music. My dad is black American. His family's from New Orleans. My mother's Puerto Rican. Grew up hearing a lot of great music and loved to dance growing up. My first fixation musically that I remember was the organ in the church. I was always really fascinated by organists. So my dad had a, a vinyl record in the basement, Back at the Chicken Shack by Jimmy Smith, uh, and it features Stanley Turrentine on it. And when I was 12 years old, I heard that album, and I was just immediately blown away. And I wanted to know what was that instrument. I asked my dad, like, I want to, I want to play that. He's a saxophone. So it turns out that my dad had an old saxophone in the basement. He never learned how to play. And I started to tinker with it, join the school band. And I started going to New Orleans during the summers as a child to visit my grandparents. My father's parents both lived in New Orleans. And when I got down there, my grandfather saw that I had an interest in music. He found a jazz camp in New Orleans, a Louis Armstrong summer jazz camp. Once I was in that element, uh, learning from some of the people who literally learned from the folks who develop what we know to be jazz music, it really just tra transformed my whole life. And I already had interest in science and math. That was my primary interest at the time, or so I thought. And that's how I got into music. And it, I just kept going. I, I would come back to, to Pennsylvania. There weren't too many outlets for me to do music, but I found ways uh, to listen to music, practice on my own. Um, I played with the Wilkes University Jazz Ensemble, uh, starting from when I was in ninth grade, thanks to Nick Driscoll, who's a local saxophonist, who uh, brought me in and just kept going from there. Just sounds like it was meant to be. I don't mean to talk about fate, but the saxophone in the basement, the record in the basement your family in New Orleans, and yet you went on to MIT to study science and engineering. I did. I did. I think I used to do math competitions growing up, absolutely a science geek. Uh, I saw Back to the Future when I, uh, for the first time when I was five years old and was obsessed. I used to watch the movies over and over again, and that's when my interest in physics began. And I did local and regional math competitions growing up always was super into it, and I ended up going to MIT for undergrad. And a lot of that had to do with it's sort of com competing passions, if you will. Like I'm very much passionate about science and engineering uh, and very much passionate about music. But I think the safer route that my family absolutely <laughs> tried to guide me toward was going into science and engineering. They didn't want me to 
to necessarily go into the arts just because they know how difficult it is to have a successful, viable career in the arts. But I did both the entire time. So when I was in high school, I played throughout. And I also, when I was in college, I used to go over and hang out at Berkeley College of Music, which is right over the bridge from MIT. There's a one bus that goes straight from MIT over to Berkeley. So I used to go hang out over there. It was very much an outlet for me. And then I also used to raise money and write grants to throw concerts at MIT, and I would hire my friends from Berkeley to come over and play. And my gigs paid way better than the local Boston gigs did. So I tried to bring together both of my worlds in that case. While we're on the subject of bringing worlds together, I get a sense your album, your own personal album, Subjective Mind, was bringing these worlds together. Yes, so the title of my my album that you're referring to, Subjective Mind, is really a nod to one of my teachers in New Orleans, the late, great Alvin Baptiste. He used to teach the beginners, uh, and we used to act up. We were young kids, 12, 13 years old, and his one of his many quotes that he had, he used to tell us to control our subjective minds. And he meant that to mean like, okay, he acknowledged that us acting up, speaking out of turn, misbehaving, if you will, which is a manifestation of creativity of our subjective minds. And I always found that really profound and interesting and also very loving uh, for an elder to see us acting, <laughs> acting up and disturbing his, his course and labeled it as us is not controlling our subjective minds. And I always found it interesting too because of the dichotomy in my life between science and music. And for me at the time, I always thought of music as uh, an opportunity to escape the more objective aspects of my life in science and math. In science and math, obviously there, there are very clear boundaries for your creativity. The things need to, to work in a, in a physical, very concrete way. And with music, I felt like there was a lot more room. But I think over time, I ended up realizing that it's the, the same reason why I love science and engineering. There's a lot of similarities to why I love music, because I love to learn fundamentals and foundational aspects of things. And then I also love to use that foundation that I build to create. Like the things I love the most about science and engineering was the creative aspect of problem solving or the opportunity that I got to do research and public research and sort of ask new questions. And the same thing with music. I love the, the fundamentals of music and that was ingrained in me at a young age by teachers like Alvin Baptiste and also Edward Kid Jordan who actually recently passed away a few weeks ago. And I was fortunate to be able to go to his funeral. But and the whole idea is to master these fundamentals so that way you can use them as a means to create and exercise the subjective mind. So you build up the objective understanding so that way you can use that as a means to create something meaningful from the subjective side of your mind. I can see in my mind's eye some of the graphs and so forth that Anthony Braxton used to create. Is it that sort of thing where you could even go that far with a musical score being like that? Oh, for sure. I don't, I don't think there are really limits to this. I think as an artist, you have full reign to create what you want. And I think that's part of the beauty of it. And I do think that artists who are more in the avant-garde, the, the, the art that they create is just as valid as those who might be more commercially successful. My first saxophone teacher that I had in New Orleans, Edward Kid Jordan, he was primarily known to be an avant-garde artist. But he also was incredibly well-versed in the fundamentals. He played classical music. He played jazz. He also was the first call 
when uh, Stevie Wonder would come to New Orleans and needed a, a musical director for a horn section. Uh, he played with Ray Charles. He, he did a ton of stuff. And I think for him, he, he instilled in me in a young age the idea that once you master the fundamentals, what you decide to do with them is a completely personal, unique decision and journey. So I have a lot of respect for artists who really push on the avant-garde and also those who stick very closely to uh, I guess what's considered to be the canon of the music, things that have been deemed to be standards uh, and also things that are more commercially viable. Now I see on your schedule, event schedule, your June itinerary takes you to the Cincinnati Symphony and in October you're with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. What do you do in those settings? Yes, so uh, those are interesting settings because it's essentially like a hybrid thing. I'm playing with my bandmate uh, on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Her name is India Owens. Uh, she actually recently, not too long ago, did a uh, Tiny Desk, NPR Tiny Desk, and her career is really starting to take off. I'm a member of her band, recorded on her album coming out probably in the next few months. And she's gotten a few fellowships from these symphonies to come and bring her music and adapt it in, in the orchestral format. Uh, and she is Juilliard trained. She studied orchestral arrangement. So we're going to go in and we're going to be playing her music, which is certainly very soulful, a lot of influences from the black church, from jazz and, and soul music, and then adapting it with a, a symphony orchestra. And I don't know exactly what it's going to sound like, but in my head I kind of imagine maybe something that is reminiscent of like the Philadelphia soul sound, you know, MFSB and those bands where it's this beautiful soul music with these lush orchestral string arrangements behind them, uh, like Love is the Message and all these other things. But, you know, she's very creative. I'm excited to see where those concerts go. Now, what has being with that band on the Colbert show made possible for you? Why do you love it? It's a regular gig, of course, but what kind of fun do you have and what are the good things about it for you? Oh, it's been amazing. I, I, I think that the, the folks in this band are some of the most incredible musicians on the planet. What we have to do every day, we learn, we're playing different music every day to serve the needs of the show, but also very much inserting our own musical identities and tastes in there. And it's just a really amazing experience to, to make music with such incredible musicians every single day. Um, and we really put on a show primarily for the audience during the commercial breaks, but then we also make music for certain segments. We, we play music from guests to walk on. Sometimes guests will break out in song and we'll uh, accompany them spontaneously. And the, the model that, that John Baptiste, who was our previous musical director, set up, I think, is very profound for, for late night television. A lot of improvisation, a lot of flexibility. And now our, our current band leader is uh, Louis Cato, who was one of the band members along with us, and he essentially got promoted when, when John left the show. But uh, there's been a beautiful experience there, and it's something very different than, than just doing a typical live show, right? Because, you know, when you do a concert, like the concert I'm doing at Kirby Center this coming Saturday, we're playing music for an audience who has come to see a concert, right? So the focal point is the band. We're curating an experience in that way. On the late show, however, we're taking all of our skills, all of our creativity to support a larger production. So we have to start and stop, you know, at the drop of a dime. We have to be able to go from one direction to another based on maybe something that Steven says or something that a guest says. And it could be something as simple as the guests maybe making a reference to a certain song. And then by the time 
we go out to a commercial break, which could be less than 30 seconds later, we will have listened to the music in our in-ear monitors. It's uh, basically a way for us to hear ourselves and also be able to communicate on stage, listen to the music, synthesize it. We can't rehearse because Stephen and the guests are right across the stage speaking, and then we'll come out and play. So it's very exciting. It's very fast-paced. And I definitely feel like it forces you to grow because of the demands of this band in this, in this particular format, which I think is pretty unique. Wonderfully described. And it takes us backstage because you have such energy and such personality when we watch you all. Now, when you come to the Kirby Center, what band are you bringing? Who's coming with you? So I'm bringing a longtime friend of mine, and he's also the newest member of the Late Show Band on piano and keyboard. His name is Corey Bernhard. Uh, he's based out of Philadelphia. And then, funny enough, he and I met in Boston my first year of college at MIT, and he was at Harvard. And he also decided to pursue music professionally, and he is now the new keyboard player on the, on the Late Show. On bass, one of my very close friends, he and I have been collaborating for over 20 years as well. And he is the bassist in Eddie Palmieri's band, who I've been with for a while, and also lots of other bands, including Sean Jones. His name is Lucas Curtis on the bass. And then a young drummer, a phenomenal young drummer, who is the current drummer with Chief Ajua, who used to be known as Christian Scott. His name is Eli Howell. And funny enough, we met on a West Coast tour. I was with Chief Ajua on the West Coast immediately after I graduated college. It's my first tour. And we played at a venue called Yoshi's in Oakland, California. And a young drummer came and sat in with us. He was barely big enough to, to sit on the drum stool, but he sounded amazing. It turns out it was... It was him. Right now he's grown. He's uh, in his early 20s, and he's like 6'7". Seeing him walk into the room, I'm like, wow, this is the same little kid who blew us away, you know, almost 20 years ago. But now he's a professional musician. He's stuck with it, and he sounds amazing. So I'm, I'm excited to bring this band up to, to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And you'll be doing originals? What kinds of things could we hope to hear? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be doing originals. Um, we'll be doing music from my EP, Subjective Mind. And then also I have a bunch of originals that have not been released yet. So the folks who come to the show will be hearing exclusive content, exclusive music, and it's a variety. My music uh, is definitely like a blend of all the things that I like. So you're going to hear elements of jazz, blues, soul, hip-hop, Afro-Caribbean rhythms. Uh, you're going to hear some classical influences. And also club music. I love club music. So it, it really kind of brings together those influences pretty seamlessly. Like, I don't necessarily believe in, in boxing the music in, so I pretty much just try to write music that appeals to me and a very often it's just a blend of all the things that I like. Any family members in the audience since you're coming home? Oh, for sure. For sure. My mom will be there. My brother will be there. I, have, I went to Mount Zion Baptist Church growing up. I know a bunch of people from the church that'll be coming. Some folks from Crestwood High School, where I graduated, and uh, it should be a really cool hometown crowd, and I'm, I'm really excited to do it because I used to perform regularly in Public Square. There was a cafe in that area called Cafe Rouge, and they opened up. It was kind of like a, a boutique coffee shop back in 2002, 2003, and I used to play there at least monthly, and I used to bring bands there, and it was always a fun time, and this was before I had even graduated high school, and my drummer was AJ Jump who is now the program director at, at the Kirby Center. It was definitely a cool full circle moment for us to be working together again in this capacity. But it's going to be a lot of familiar faces, a lot of love in the crowd. I'm very much looking forward to it. I keep going back to the circling round in your life and the kind of flow that you've been experiencing. 
you grew up in mountaintop and that you have this wonderful gift and connection to New Orleans and you're rooted in the tradition, but you make it your own and that you're bringing it home. Yes. And I mean, to your point, it, it really is um, interesting how everything came together because I, I, didn't, I don't think I mentioned it before, but on the first day that I went into that jazz camp in New Orleans, some of the folks that I met include uh, John Baptiste. He's a year younger than me. Um, Christian Scott, the drummer who was performing with us, is currently in his band. I also recorded and toured with him. Trombone Shorty, a lot of young musicians who are now doing amazing things, you know, who are in my generation. And also uh, Wynton Marsalis was the artist in residence that year. And I know, and like, for, for me, it's just my, I just started, I could barely operate the instrument, but to be in that environment and to make those connections at a young age was uh, really a beautiful thing. And definitely, I think, paved the way for me to, to continue, because, you know, it's, it's tough. It's really tough to, to navigate having a career in, in music or in the arts in general. Uh, it takes a certain level of conviction, but I definitely think that my experience in New Orleans is, is a huge part of, you know, what fortified me to eventually, like, have the courage to, to take that leap. That's important to hear. It's important for young musicians to hear that. And I don't know, it sounds like it was really all these circles coming together. And it doesn't automatically mean that you're going to be a success. You have to work and you have to care, as you clearly do. Yeah, for sure. And, and to your point, um, it was in a panel, we, we do an intern workshop at The Late Show for the folks who are typically still in college who are interning at the show and trying to learn more. They'll meet with all the different departments. They also meet with the band and very often get asked, like, you know, what, what, when did you get the confidence to decide, like, okay, I can do music professionally or make a career out of it? And what I tell them is, like, I don't know, I don't know if I ever necessarily have had the confidence to do it. I just had the desire to do it. I had passion for the craft, the passion to learn more, passion to figure out how to navigate this. And I think that that, that work ethic and the consistency and the dedication matters in a lot of instances more than the confidence, because the confidence, I think, is something that will naturally grow from you actually seeing successes, right, and, and actually seeing the fruit of your, of your labor. But I think going into it, I don't necessarily know that confidence is, is but so necessary. Like, I think it's just necessary to, to know, like, okay, I want to do this. I want to try to figure this out and be devoted day in and day out to it. And then I think the results go from there. And I think what you say, too, about getting to know the fundamentals, because once you've got the fundamentals, as you suggested, you can use them to make the music you want to make at the moment. And it could be different styles, but to know how music works. Absolutely. And you've had some wonderful mentors, and I think that's another part that gives you that model that you need, everybody needs. Yeah, it's it's a really beautiful thing. Um, I feel very fortunate to I've had mentors who have just made themselves available and made themselves open. And I'm also just I'm thankful, like in retrospect, I just see that I was a very proactive mentee, which I think is just as important to want to seek out and build those relationships and want to learn more and want to be a sponge and humble yourself to learn more. Because very often, you know, you have people who desire to mentor and who are there and who are good mentors. And people will say that, oh, this person was a great mentor, but then another person in the same room might not benefit as much. I think it's, a, it's always a two-way street, right? You can't necessarily force people to synthesize the things that are given to you. And I'm thankful to have had mentors who are incredibly generous uh, and loving. And, and also just in retrospect to see that even as a 12-year-old, the desire to learn more and the desire to actually form a relationship with them that I had that because I think it really changed the whole course of my life, if I'm going to be honest. 
and it's not just in music, it's also in, in science and, and math and everything. It was a really amazing moment. Uh, a few months ago, I played at Scholars. It's a jazz club in Boston. And one of my heroes in science engineering, her name is Paula Hammond. Uh, she is the head of the chemical engineering department at MIT. That was one of the majors that I had at MIT. And she was single-handedly the reason why I wanted to study chemical engineering. She came and spoke at a summer program that I did in high school. And I was so fascinated by her research. And then when I got into college, she allowed me to come into her lab as an undergraduate and, and do research with one of her grad students and ended up leading to a publication, which is the only science publication that I have, and ended up in a, in a prestigious journal. And she really, you know, she allowed that to happen. I was always thankful for that and always very kind and, and generous, just a wonderful mentor. And I had not seen her in a long time. And she popped up at my gig at Scholars and surprised me almost. I feel like I almost like passed out. I was so excited to see her and just her kind and giving energy. And once again, you know, thankful that also at the time I was just eager to, to learn um, because I think that as students, you know, you can learn a lot just by going through the coursework, by reading the books. But there's also a very personal element that, you know, like the people who are teaching you are, are humans and they have all this rich experience and also a certain spiritual energy that I think is also very important. So she showed up, and throughout my life, just thankful for mentors who have showed up for me and also thankful that I had the desire as a young person to connect with them. Because I think that without that, I honestly, I'm not necessarily even sure who or where I would be. But happily, your circling brings you back home. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm really excited to, to come back and perform with my group in Wilkes-Barre in a couple blocks from that coffee shop 20 years later. It really is super meaningful for me. And um, Northeast Pennsylvania, that's, that's my home. So uh, it feels nice to be able to come back and I plan and hope that this will be one of many moving forward. The masterful saxophonist Louis Fouché, who has appeared nightly on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert since 2017, first as a member of John Baptiste and Stay Human, and now with Louis Cato and The Late Show Band. He is a native of northeastern Pennsylvania. He grew up in Mountaintop, attended Crestwood High School and Wyoming Seminary, he spent summers with family in New Orleans, where he began studying music at the Louis Satchmo Armstrong Summer Jazz Camp, a life-changing experience. We also heard that before pursuing music full-time, Fouché earned degrees in physics and chemical engineering from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston, and he will return to play at the F.M. Kirby Center tomorrow night. That's the F.M. Kirby Center in downtown Wilkes-Barre, live from the Chandelier Lobby at 7.30. It's on Public Square in downtown Wilkes-Barre tomorrow evening. Louis Fouché at the F.M. Kirby Center in downtown Wilkes-Barre, Saturday, May 13th at 7.30 p.m. That's tomorrow evening at 7.30 for more information on the web, kirbycenter.org. He'll have his band with him and a range of the music he loves, originals especially. And you can find more about Louis Fouché at his website, louisfouché.com. And that's L-O-U-I-S-F-O-U-C-H-E.com. L-O-U-I-S-F-O-U-C-H-E. louisfouché.com. 
live from the Chandelier Lobby at the Kirby Center on Public Square in downtown Wilkes-Barre tomorrow evening at 7.30. KirbyCenter.org.